Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to another edition of The Nuclear View. Of course, I am Adam Wilder, and I am with Curtis McGiffin, Jim Petrosky, and Sam Stanton, and we are all with the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we always encourage you to think deterrence. Now, today on The Nuclear View, there are five specific questions that I've asked my colleagues to address because we're at a time, uh, particularly with the war in Ukraine, we're at a time when you think about the potential for conflict over Taiwan, where we really have to think through the U.S. nuclear deterrent and what might be some of the challenges that we face as we prepare for a, a definitely uncertain future. And so with that, let me ask my first question. And uh, of course, it's one that is it's really directed towards you, Jim. And so let me ask you, are there technical reasons why elimination of the hedge, which is one of the elements of the new nuclear posture review, is there are there technical reasons why elimination of the hedge is unwise? All right, Adam. Well, thank you. And first of all, all futures are uncertain. So that's, uh, you know, what we want to do is control the future in a way that works to our advantage. I just want to throw that out there. And it fits into this concept exactly with the nuclear hedge. And that is for the audience that may not have listened to us, I think two weeks ago or uh, on an episode where we talked a little bit more about the hedge. Um, the hedge, of course, are the, are the nuclear weapons that have been pulled from uh, deployable status and are placed uh, are, are placed in a secure location where they're not no longer deployed and they're not part of our agreements um, in the treaty. So that's the first step. And so the the, the question about technical requirements to for reducing the uh, the hedge, I want I want to flip that over a little bit. And why would we want to get rid of the hedge first of all? And that is you know if we have we have weapons. We have pits, if you will, uh, in the stockpile been created and they're in the background and they're not part of the, the, the overall deployable status under the treaties. Why would we want to get rid of these weapons? They're, they're, they're holding no, uh, no necessary deployment uh, position at present, um, but um, they do provide us a bit of padding, especially when you think about where we're going to, you know, who our adversaries are. The technical question, though, I think is important, Adam. And the technical question is, do we have the ability to spin up on the weapons that we would no longer have if we took the hedge away? And we addressed this sort of last week, um, and maybe I failed to do this, but uh, uh, we talked about who our adversaries are. If we talk about two adversaries, Russia or China, that's one set of tools. But what if it's both? And that increases the number. And the whole concept of the hedge was if Russia began to deploy many, many more weapons, we had the hedge available. But what if it's another adversary and they combine efforts to do that? We need to define that fairly well. And that technical need 
is really important. It takes a lot to spin it up. So I know I've gone a little bit long, but I wanted to lay that in the background early on in this in this talk because I think that is an important part before we touch the technology. Yeah, one of the big challenges that you know I think you know Sam or or Curtis could also jump in here on is you know we're we're trying to produce to build the capacity to produce new plutonium pits we certainly have the technical knowledge and means to produce new nuclear weapons we're largely constrained by policy but we're also constrained by the fact that we've allowed the facilities that we historically used to produce these new warheads uh, we've allowed those facilities to, you know, age out. And so part of this, this tech, this question of technical capacity or the technical means is, and this part, it's not that we don't understand how it's, do we have all of the facilities? Do we have all of the resident capability to build all of these new warheads? You know, if, as you clearly uh, indicate, we have Russia and China collaborating. You throw in the fact that North Korea has recently said they're going to dramatically. So there's a potential where the United States would have to dramatically increase the size of its of its nuclear arsenal. And so I just I wonder, you know, that that capacity, the technical means, you know, building new facilities like at Los Alamos or wherever we might need it. That's not a quick process. So do we have that? ability and capacity to, to do that? Capacity to do it? I would say, yes, we do. Capability of doing it. So that's where you hit upon that with the, the time constraint. Uh, do we have the capacity? I mean, if we redirect resources, if we choose that this is the course of action we're going to take to um, rejuvenate the technical facilities necessary for making these particular types of weapon systems. Can we do that? Yes. But then it comes the capability question. Can, yes. Capability is putting can into practice. And the technological capability right now for us is minimal because we don't have those facilities and they take so long to build. Yeah. Did Jim, did y'all, you or Curtis want to add to what Sam said? Yeah, Sam. Yeah, I appreciate that, and you're exactly right. But some of these, some of these lead lines, uh, do take a bit of time to build the skill levels that you require to meet the tolerances for our our weapons and the associated components. They all take a workforce that has been testing and evaluating and learning the processes, and they're just not skills that are developed overnight. So those, that timeline is really the thing that I really am concerned about. You're right, Sam. I, I think we can, I, you know, we, can, we can do anything. I mean, let's face it. We built the first nuclear <laughs> weapon in a very short period of time. When we wanted to, we had the will, we had the wherewithal, and we know so much more now. The question is, how are we going to do that? And when are we going to start? Because if we don't start, we'll never finish. Did you want to add anything to that, Curtis? So thank you, Adam and, and, and team. And Sam, it's great to have you on this. Uh, I would add to this that, you know, the, the, we talk about the capability and maybe even the capacity. The third question is, do we have the will? 
And when we when we don't have the will uh, to maintain the stockpile we currently have, but then say in the same document that we're going to work to have the cap- capability to build new stuff, uh, you have to wonder about the will. Uh, the elimination of the hedge is, I don't know, sort of a backdoor uh, methodology of eliminating whole swaths of nuclear weapons. Um, and, and that's, that's challenging. Um, it, uh, just recently, um, it was noted that, uh, in October of 2021, uh, 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 the United States had just 3,750 warheads in its stockpile. This is all department of state public information. Um, and that they had dismantled 711 warheads, uh, between F, uh, fiscal year 2017 and fiscal year 2021. So at that rate, we'll eliminate all of our hedge in about 11 years. Uh, if that's the rate we continue, that's a pretty significant uh, issue. Uh, you know, it took us 17 years to design and deploy the F-35. Um, I, you know, to think that we're going to be able to build enough pits um, to to replace these aging systems is is an issue. And this is a big problem because we can't on one hand say that there is a problem with uh, Chinese uh, proliferation per se, uh, expansion, I guess a better word to use, and then say, but it's okay if we continue to reduce and eliminate. Uh, there is either a threat or there isn't. And so we have to discover whether or not we have the will uh, to face these uh, to face these threats with a necessary capability and capacity to do so. Curtis, this is Jim. Um, one of the things I, I would say, Adam pushed this to technology, and I know he always pokes at me because I'm the technology guy here, but I'm going to flip it around a little bit. Um, I look at our strategic documents, and maybe there's stuff in the classified side, but where does our strategy show that we are reliant or using the hedge? It doesn't seem to show up when you look at it elsewhere. And without that, it becomes easy fodder to say, get rid of the hedge. So, so how do you fit that into a strategy? Actually, it's a, that's a great question, Jim, because the hedge, um, you know, this, this, this hedge and, and your definition was great. Let me throw mine in here, which is the deliberate preservation and storing of nuclear warheads that with minimal technical support are ready to be added to the active stockpile, right? And due to issues maybe that might be problematic technically wise or geopolitical threats and circumstances that might actually require us to plus up our capability, right? Well, since since uh, President Clinton's first NPR post-Cold War in 1994, where he defined the hedge and why it existed, it was for uncertain uh, futures, right? And and that language has been repeated throughout the next four NPRs for, of course, Bush, uh, President Obama, President Trump, and, and then now President Biden is the first to sort of step away from, uh, you know, 30 years of precedent, bipartisan precedent, precedent by the way, um, by saying it's time to eliminate the hedge. At a time where geopolitically, we're at greatest potential for nuclear challenge and the greatest need for nuclear deterrence than we've ever had since the end of the Cold War. So we're, 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 we're looking at the, uh, uh, this issue is, is just, it's just the wrong time to have this conversation geopolitically wise. 
but yet there's an effort to try to continue to have this conversation. Well, let me ask a, a follow-on question, and that that is this. Is there a technical reason why further arms control would be unwise? I mean, we have, we sort of understand the political reasons, you know, growing China, growing North Korea, you know, uh, a Russia with that's got more than, you know, two to 6,000 theater ballistic or theater nuclear weapons. But what about technical reasons why it might be unwise? Go ahead, Jim. I'm very interested in Sam's response, but I want you to just maybe further dig down on that. When you say arms control, how broadly are you speaking of that? Are we talking nuclear? Are we talking major systems, minor systems? Where where are you going with this? Well, so whenever I say arms control, obviously I'm talking about nuclear arms control. And, you know, within within the disarmament community, there is a further push for additional reductions, even in the midst of the current geopolitical situation with Ukraine. And with China, because part of the argument is, is, hey, if we if we reduce U.S. nuclear weapons further, then the Russians and the Chinese will see that we are not a threat and that we have no intentions to threaten them. And then they will cease to build. They will perhaps reduce of their own volition. And so my question is, you know, we understand the geopolitics, but what about the technical aspect of it? Did I explain it for you, Jim? <laughs> You're fine. I'm sort of interested in Sam's first cut on this because he sort of got us oriented nicely. Go ahead, Sam. Uh, I can't Jim's... come up with a reason yeah. for it to ever be wise to further reduce the arsenal. Technical or otherwise. Technical or otherwise. <laughs> uh, I mean, look. We commit ourselves through treaties, through the agreements that we make to certain reductions. Okay. Is there a reason to go beyond that? Now, if you think that getting rid of all of the nuclear weapons and getting rid of all the weapons in general is going to make the world a more peaceful place, go ahead. And I have real estate to sell you in certain places around the world <laughs> and can promise you that you will win the lottery. So, you know, the technical, you know, I, I figure the guys here that we have with us at the Institute that are much more on the end of how you build these things and those questions than myself are better armed for that. But I can't come up with a good reason to say that further reduction is wise, period. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, so Adam, yeah, thank you, Sam. I'm, I'm glad you put that into the context and I, I appreciate just sort of the ground truth there. And I, so, so I like taking, you know, two sides on this. So one is why should there be any limit on our arms? Why don't we just build as many as we can, as fast as we can? And that's one argument. Of course, the other one is to get rid. And the answer is that I think we would, at least among us agree, there's a, there's a place in the middle where we achieve our objectives. And so it goes back to what is the strategy in our arsenal and what do we see as the future of the strategy? And so from a technical standpoint, reduction, every time we atrophy in our weapons development, we lose that workforce, we lose that skill set, we lose those foundational components 
that help us maintain the ability to respond when our adversaries build their weapon systems. And so that part of the strategy is the important technical aspect. Um, there is, I'll be a component, a, a, a component here for something that probably will g- gather some ire from some. And that is, I think we should look at new developmental designs with modern materials, modern developmental designs that can allow us to strategically design our nuclear forces to meet new targets with new with new capabilities such as uh, uh, a better targeting, better delivery systems, and uh, a more surgical component to it to be able to replace uh, holes in the system where the adversary has taken advantage. For example, tactical nuclear weapons is a good example. Go ahead, Curtis. Uh, yeah, let me. Uh, I appreciate that answer very much, Jim. I, I think. I think. Uh, it's just the three little pigs concept here, right? So if we want to build our deterrence out of straw uh, walls and wooden walls, um, we can, we can do that with, you know, sort of a minimalist mentality, but what we have to be prepared for is the worst day, right? The, the day when the wind blows and that, that brick house is the one that we need on that one day. And that's what saves our lives. And that brick house is, is, you know, that sort of, uh, uh, idea that I've got to be more than just the minimum in order to withstand the worst storms. Um, you know, that the wooden and straw houses will keep you out of the sun and keep you dry on a gentle rain day. But when the, when the, you know, when the tempest blows, you need that brick house. And, and unfortunately that's what we build a nuclear deterrent for is, is the worst day. Let me address the one thing though, about modernization of the warhead. And I think it's, it's what you're saying. And, and I think there is, there is definitely an argument to say we should get rid of the old stuff and, and have new stuff. And that's cool, but we can't get rid of the old stuff and then gap and wait for the new stuff to be made, right? That's one problem that can't happen. But yeah, the I second problem is that, that I – and here's the problem as, as, a, as a non-scientist, as a, just a dumb, squishy liberal arts dude, um, when I'm looking at this from a deterrence standpoint – um, right now, we use warheads that have all been visibly tested. I say visibly, you know, when we blow them up underground or whatever, but they've been tested, measured. The adversary has some reasonable uh, inkling that the stuff will work. If we build new systems out of new materials with new technology and and uh, and new um, 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 what was that term you used? Hydrocolometer, uh, hydrolatical, uh, gazinks, hydrolatical, and, and, yeah. and magical devices that we <laughs> stick inside these things. If we don't ever get to test them, how will the adversary ever know that they will really work? So, then we really take deterrence to the faith level, and I think it gets a little bit harder. There's some value in knowing that stuff works because we tested it. So I think I'm all for new stuff if we could actually test it too to communicate to the world that it works, people, so deterrence still holds. So, Curtis, I'll, I'll just, I, uh, this is Jim Petrosky, but I, I really want to uh, push back against that last comment because I okay. we do testing. Uh, our national labs are doing testing every day on all the components in ways that we never could have imagined 30, 40 years ago when we were developing these weapons. And we know so much more about how the weapons function in various ways because we can take something very complex 
like a nuclear explosion that is, you know, every time someone says, well, we tested this weapon, I said, good, put it back together and stick it in a stockpile because that one worked. Okay. But here we can do tests over and over again in very, very controlled environments. So that I just wanted to highlight at least my now, view on and that. Jim, I, and Jim, that's great because from a scientist perspective, that makes a bunch of sense to you. But from uh, from an observer on the outside of this outside of the laboratory, if I don't see uh, a giant mushroom cloud or a giant cave in of a mountain where an underground test has occurred and it's been reported on the news and we're all shocked and awed over it, I'm not sure that that test has as much meaning to the Kim Jong Uns of the world uh, and and so forth. If Kim Jong Uns laboratory docs all said our stuff works and it never tests, would we believe it? We would we take it on faith that their science works? We we believed it with little boy, didn't we? Well, we did, but we did have a chance to we did have a chance to test it though, right? And um, and of course you're uh, well, I mean the 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 concept for as far as uh, the first one tested, right? We tested no, one. No, we, we tested didn't test the first. The first weapon went completely untested. Okay, so um, but, but it was so but it was so rudimentarily designed. They felt they didn't need to test it. Correct. We, we so, understood it. We understood the right. physics so well. We're also we in an act. We're also in a time of war where where testing, you know, literally occurred on the battlefield. That makes some sense. We're not at a time of war right now. We're trying to avoid the time of war, and this is where I think testing uh, uh, has to be conducted in such a way. This is the challenge with ballistic missile defense. If we test all the time, and we do, but if we test all the time and we miss fifty percent of our shots, I'm just pulling numbers out of my head, out of my behind i don't really know what our what our hit to hit ratios are but but let's just say we're trying you're your country x and you're trying to show it you have a capability but half the time it doesn't work are you creating a deterrent out of that or not um and so these are the sorts sorts of things so i think there's a lot of there's a lot of potential uh in helping deterrence message when when the testing is is uh is, is credible, not in the sense of the laboratory. I believe it's credible in every way that you described it, Jim, but I'm not the one we're trying to deter. We so, need Kim Jong-un to believe that. And so we I, need so, Putin so to I'll, believe that. So I, I will agree with that, that, that the demonstration of a weapon and its awesome power is, is in and of itself a deterrent itself. So I will agree with that. I, I want to go back one more step, though, to what you'd said, and that was, you know, we modernize and get rid of the old old weapons and there's this gap in between. And I want to hit on it from Adam's question about the hedge. Isn't yeah. the hedge doing that for us, giving us some little bit of latitude to be able to develop new weapons and expand? Yes. It's yes. all there. And I think that is the important piece to answering Adam's question about the technological aspect. We have the technology to build new weapons, modernize. We have the a technology to analyze and study the older weapons because they're there. And we have the hedge in between to provide that ability to bridge that gap. Wow. Yeah, I think it's great. That's why we got to keep the hedge. Well, <laughs> let me throw the the next question at you guys. And and this is you know, sort of a follow-on question. And, and that is, how should we best determine the size and capabilities present in a nuclear arsenal? Should, should it be, you know, uh, 1550 is less than 2000, which was the previous, you know, the previous arms control agreement was 
was 2100 was the max. So if you go down about 500, that's good. So let's stick to that number. Or is should we avoid uh, having set arms control limits? I mean, we don't do it on any other military platforms. And do we just, do we have an arsenal that can go up, can go down? You know, it's like, uh, you know, with the Marines, I mean, the Marines are radically reshaping the Marine Corps' capabilities and platforms because they're saying, hey, the, the, the fight we're in is different now. And so therefore we need new capabilities. The Air Force is, is looking to reshape what it does. And should the nuclear arsenal and nuclear forces be equally capable of being able to change, you know, change numbers, change delivery vehicles, or are arms control agreements that stick us at certain numbers, do they provide us something better? And that's sort of an open question to anybody. You want to start, Sam? <laughs> um, again, I, I'm like Curtis. I'm I'm a, a squishy liberal arts guy, so the the technical part of this I'll defer to to Jim. Uh, but what should drive the size of the nuclear force? Uh, what is the expected operational theater? Right. Where are we thinking that we might need to be able to use these? Well, of course, we, we start with you know, a global fight where you've got to hit a number of targets, right? But then if we go down to, if it's just one competitor, one adversary, and we need to place these things against certain targets and certain locations, then we need certain sizes of warheads that have certain destructive capacity, right? Now, how do we plan for that? How do we build that force? So that seems to be a flexible force. Yeah. Because uh, we have to, we have to be able to meet both the the global scale and the limited scale, and I, I don't that, see as having spent a lot of time thinking about the limited scale. Yeah, good thought, Curtis. You were itching to to offer up your your take on this one. So, so I think this is a. Um, you know, like all your questions, Adam, it's always great. I think the great Peter Husey wrote an article recently on, on whether or not numbers matter. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, you know, I'm still kind of thinking about this myself and, and I think, uh, numbers do matter because that's what all we worry about when we think about treaties, right. Is we're counting nose cones. So numbers do matter to the, to the ones who want arms control. But the, where the numbers really matter is how do you get for deterrence? And there's this idea by many deterrence uh, or nuclear minimalists that numbers don't matter as long as I have enough, right? Enough to get you, right? Is it 1,000? Is it 500? Is it 311? Um, you know, what is it? And, and, uh, and, and the reality is, is, is it, the, the, it is the, the, the number that is needed to deter your adversary is the number that your adversary fears, 
So you got to get in your adversary's head and figure out what is it that they, they fear. And it's not only just numbers, right? But it's payload and range and all of these sorts of things when we're thinking about what it is, right? So parity or saturation parity or mutual assured destruction in a three-way mutual uh, is an interesting number that nobody really knows. My number is, is our number should match every number of all of our adversaries. That's where I would start. (laughs) So if there's 1,550 and for Russia and 1,550 for us, we have parity. That's great. But uh uh-oh, there's going to be a thousand um, in China. Well, whose side are they on? Are they on the Russian side, our side, or their side? Sure. And the answer is two of those three answers are something we need to worry about. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so we now have to have an ability to deter them and Russia at the same time. The worst case scenario, why we need the brick house. And so for the, the brick house to work on the worst of days is how do I deter? And I need sufficient numbers. I believe, with sufficient yields, right? Because you could have 4,000 nukes, but if they're all 15 kilotons, that may not be nearly as fearful as, you know, as um, as fewer nukes, but bigger, bigger, bigger booms uh, yield. So yeah, bigger booms. So so that that I think all matters and has to be calculated into because the enemy is counting. The adversary counts because it matters to them too. We have to figure out how it matters. And then we have to figure out what that number is. We always want to be careful not to over deter because then you create fear and you, and that's what drives the, the arms racing uh, paradigm. But the reality is, is that if you don't race enough, you put yourself in, in peril. Okay, Jim, I'm going to give you the last word because unfortunately we are out of time. So Oh, well, good. Well, first of all, you know, and everyone can enjoy the reference. My number is 42. (laughs) And so that's the number. Um, But so, so, uh, but, but seriously, you know, Adam, we started out when you talked about the uncertain future and I said, all futures are uncertain. So there's, uh, and I think this gets to the heart of this matter. We look at the con ops, or at least our expected con ops, and we look at the future and in your question, you said, you know, should we be flexible, agile, et cetera? And our nuclear force should be flexible, agile, and certainly be able to respond to changes in this uncertain future. And I think that's one thing we haven't done in the past, that the treaties, et cetera, help to structure us. Is that, and, and I see Curtis's you know, comment that you don't want to overfear, you don't want to underfear, you just got to get it right. But getting it right today isn't, may not be getting it right in July or in 2024, or in 2030. And you have to have the technical and the strategic senses to be able to manage that over that kind of a time period. Because as I said before, this technical work takes a long time and it must be managed with that long-term view. So that would be my answer on all of the above here. And that's why the hedge exists, right? So that you can expand and contract as you need it. Thank you for the tagline there, Curtis. By the way, Curtis, I just want to mention now you are known for having the whack-a-mole nuclear theory and the three little pigs nuclear theory. There it is. I can't wait to our next <laughs> cast to hear what your newest theory is. And by the way, when you said 42 is your number, you meant megatons, right? <laughs> uh, giga. <laughs> Well, it seems that uh, the nuclear view has once again devolved into bad dad jokes. 
And so with that, we'll go ahead and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll put this episode in the can. I want to thank Sam Stanton, Curtis McGiffin, Jim Petrosky for preventing me from getting through all five of my questions. I had five, we did three. Our goal. And, uh, but it was, it was as always, you know, it was informative. We started with question one, went to others and came back to number one. So that's a way, a good way to circle back. But I want to. Th- well, it sounds like we got next week's already. <laughs> but I want to thank you guys and thank the listeners, of course. And hopefully, when you listen to the Nuclear View, you learn something. Because that is, of course, our goal. And as always, we do want to encourage you to think deterrence. And we will see you on the next episode.